Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host. So thank you all very much for being here. I, I always appreciate it. You know, there's, there's a lot of places you go for MMA content. I'm profoundly grateful and occasionally confused that you choose mine as a supplement to your MMA experience. So thank you. Thank you very much. Again, I, I appreciate it. Uh, let's see. On the agenda this evening, last night, first pay-per-view of 2024, UFC 298. Uh, we'll be talking about that. There's some. There's definitely some fallout there. Then, the UFC is back in Mexico City for the first time since what 2019, I think, was uh, the first uh, the first attempted fight between uh, Yair Rodriguez and Jeremy Stevens when. Rodriguez poked him in the eye in like 20 seconds and his eye spasmed shut and <laughs> the crowd threw a bunch of stuff at everybody. So, you know, fun times. Um, so we'll preview that card. It's a pretty decent card, actually. <clears throat> um, nice of them to finally give the flyweights a main event slot. Been a while since we've done that. Um, yeah. So I think that's everything as far as... Uh, we got a little bit of news. UFC 300 finally got the main event announced, so, you know, there's that. We'll talk about that. And whatever else might have happened. Again, we had another kind of slower news week. Um, a lot of it was dedicated to the buildup of 298, but not much, you know, beyond that. Uh, yeah, so please, as always, like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, whatever's applicable to your podcast platform of choice, anything you can do to help out the show, always, always, always. Always greatly appreciated. So thank you all very, very much. Uh, yeah, I think that's it for the intro. Um, let's jump into it, shall we? UFC 298. So off the top, for those of you who might be newer here, this year, 2024, I am keeping track of my predictions as an exercise in, I don't know, curiosity. See how bad I am at this. And at the moment, so at the top of every review, I talk about what I, how I did. Um, and it's more, it's mostly pick related. So, you know, I'd, I'd save a lot of the analysis for when we do the actual fights, but, um, so how did I do? Uh, nine and three. I went nine and three last night and I'll take that. I'll take it. Um, Let's see. I only got three wrong. I got the main event wrong. I got um, Hernandez and Kapilov wrong, both of which I can live with for different reasons. <clears throat> the one that I'm annoyed at. The only one that annoyed me, and that's because like two minutes into this fight, I went, really, you bonehead? Um, getting Dern and Lemos wrong, I... That's the only one I really should have known better. Um, I, my law, I understand why I picked copy love and I'll stand by that, you know, um, I, I didn't mind picking him as an underdog there and the main event was just, you know, dude, that was almost a coin flip when the odds closed and I have no shame. I, I don't feel bad about all about getting that one wrong. Um, I know, I know some people who got it right <clears throat> and good on you, but I'm, I'm just not going to beat myself up over getting that pick wrong, given, you know, it's Volkanovski and Teporia. 
Yeah, nine and three. Um, year to date, I am forty-one and nineteen with two no contests. Um, minor note here on this card. So day of weigh-ins, we switched Hoffa brothers. Apparently, Justin had some kind of a knee injury he got on Wednesday. His brother Junior stepped in. Even from the beginning, if this had been Junior Taffa instead of Justin, I would have picked Delima, because they're they're very different fighters. Um, so you're gonna have to trust. I, I don't know how we want to do this. At the moment, I'm asking you to trust me that I'm not just cherry picking the results of fights that swap during the from the time we record to the fight night. If you want to, I'll leave this kind of up to you guys. If you don't trust me, fair enough. I'll create a new column going forward on my spreadsheet. I do have a spreadsheet for this. That is like fights that fizzled or fights that I didn't predict. And I'll do that. Otherwise, like my ego is not being is not being fed by going, look what I, I predicted correctly, but you don't. Like, oh no, I, I didn't. I'm going to pick after the fact, like Dalima and Taffa, really? <laughs> but, again, I'll kind of leave that up to you for the moment. I'm just, until, again, potentially switching columns up or adding a new category, I'm, you're just going to kind of have to trust me that my ego is not fragile enough that getting something wrong, absent online evidence of it, is, something I'm, is not something I'm going to, is uh, not something I'm going to do. So... Um, but I, I will always bring up if a fight switches out between announcement and between podcast and event, I'll let you know when we do these. And look, if at the end, if at the end of the year, if you get, if I'm not going to keep track of those, if we're just doing this normally, but if any of you want to, and like, I've got a hundred percent pick rate on those last minute replacements, then feel free to be suspicious. That would be highly unusual. As it stands, I think I'm, what, 2-0? and Neither of which were very difficult to predict. Because Balaji Oki last week had a replacement. And I stuck with um, Oki. And then here, I would have... Again, I switched from Justin Toffa to DeLima after Junior stepped in. So, again, I, I, that's just in the nature of disclosure. Otherwise, what I pick here is what I pick. And sometimes during the course of the week, I beat myself up over it. Like, really? Really? But that's where we are. So, again, 41 and 19, two no contests on the year. I, I told you all, my goal is to be better than 50-50. So, at the moment, I'm a little bit close to 2-1. to one. I'd like to get that higher, if I'm being honest. But... The last couple of events I've done, I've done well. Um, man, those two in the middle. I I went eight and three first card of the year, then seven and five twice in a row. Last week, uh, two weeks ago, so UFC and ESPN plus ninety four, ten and three, and then nine and three this time. Both those events, the last two had a no contest in each of them. So that's where we are with that. Uh, yeah, all right, let's get into the fights then, shall we? If you're done hearing me talk about some of my prediction tracking. Main event. Uh, you know, I've been around for a while. 
I'm not the most senior guy in the world, but I've been around for a bit. And while it's never as shocking watching a pound-for-pound great, in fact, an all-time great, the first time, maybe the first two times that happens, it is... um, it reorganizes the MMA universe for you. I mean, in in a respect, it does for everyone because suddenly pound for pound grade is no longer king of the hill and suddenly we got to reorganize things. But as a fan, you know, the first time that happens, first two times, it's, it's weird seeing newer fans go through it for the first time. I mentioned this before, like, uh, my youngest brother is kind of a fan, and his reaction to Kamaru Usman getting head kicked by Leon Edwards um, was interesting, because to him, never seen Usman lose, and he'd never really seen, you know, one of those like unstoppable all-time great run guys, and Usman was on an all-time great run. I don't know that he'd surpass George St. Pierre as champion, but again, Usman's run before Edwards was uh, impeccable. You struggle to find rounds that he lost. That good. And I remember where I was when Anderson Silva got knocked out. I remember watching... I'm going to go into the Wayback Machine here for a few of you. But I I remember Silva getting knocked out. I remember, obviously I remember Connor knocking out Jose Aldo, which was so shocking, I still have friends who insist there was an element of work to that, instead of it being a shoot. I remember Fedor getting tapped out, that was, never thought, never thought I'd see that. Um... I remember Forrest Griffin beating Shogun at a time when Shogun was widely considered the best light heavyweight in the world, and if not, and was a ranked pound-for-pound guy coming into the UFC off of Pride. I remember that. That was pretty shocking. Um, I remember Brian Bowles knocking out Miguel Torres. Heck, I remember Mike Brown knocking out Uriah Faber, and a lot of people being surprised by that. Look. I've never been a fan of Faber's. He was on a good run, but I think a lot of the shock around that came from people not understanding Mike Brown and just how good he was. But Faber and Torres both were like seriously highly ranked pound for pound on these big runs when that happened. And it was, again, kind of reorienting for the world. Um, yeah, I remember Mirko Krokop getting head kicked by Gabriel Gonzaga when that that made no sense. That's one of those outcomes I still can't make sense of. I know it happened. I watched it. But, like, how did that happen? (laughs) Not that Gonzaga is some bad fighter. He wasn't. But, like, how did he head kick the right leg hospital, left leg cemetery kicking machine that was Mirko Krokop? Um, So, point there being, like, I've... Been around the block long enough to remember some of those like moments when an all-time great, when it all comes kind of falling down. And I am not trying to write the obituary for Alexander Volkanovsky's MMA career. Not in the slightest. But 
the peak has passed, I think is a very safe and very fair assessment. So in your main event, Ilya Taportia knocks out Alexander Volkanovsky in the second round. Beautiful right hook. Wins the title. And the the stat line remains where it is for 35 and older folks. Um, you know, we've kind of harped on this. Uh, somebody threw up a different variation of it that I think was important to note. Because um, for those of you who don't know, the current stat line is at welterweight and under on the men's side of UFC title fights. And if you add women, this only changes one. So the only woman to ever do it was, should have been Valentina in that rematch with Grosso, but screwy scoring. Um, the only woman to win a UFC title fight after the age of 35. I might have to check Raquel Pennington. No, Pennington is, but I think so was um, whoever she, uh, Buena Silva. I'll double check that later. Amanda Nunes is, the long and the short of that, like Amanda Nunes is kind of the only one to have done it when she, not when she regained her title from uh, Pena, but when she defended it against uh, Aldana. So she's the, I'm pretty sure she's the only one on the women's side to have done it. And if we go to the men's side, again, welterweight and below, the only fighter to have won a UFC title fight after the age of 35 is Tyron Woodley. He did it twice. I've talked about this before. He beat Damian Maya and he beat Darren Till. Now, if we tweak this stat just a little bit, because Damian Maya was actually older than Woodley. Damian was like 40. If we tweak that stat line just a little bit and do the following. The only time the older fighter, welterweight and below, uh, when they're 35 or older, has won a title. They've only done it once if they're fighting someone younger than them. That was when Woodley beat Darren Till. So again, you can tweak that stat line just a little bit to say... It's only kind of happened once. And once again, if we go lightweight and lower, never. It has never happened. Some all-time greats, and I mean that, BJ Penn, Frankie Edgar, Benson Henderson, Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, Khabib, Charles Oliveira, uh, if we go to featherweight, you know, Jose Aldo, Max Holloway, now Volkanovski, add him to that list. Bantamweight, some great bantamweights throughout the years. Again, Dominic Cruz. Uh, TJ Dillashaw couldn't do it. Aljamain Sterling couldn't do it. Um, I think he might have if he beat if he had beaten O'Malley. I have to double check how old Aljo is. Cejudo couldn't do it. No, no, he would not have been there because Cejudo was older when they fought. And Masudo came out of retirement, so but Cejudo, Henry Cejudo couldn't do it. Demetrius Johnson couldn't do it. Maybe if you count his third fight with Adriano Moraes and one, but we're talking only about the UFC. Um, I saw people starting to th- people have started throwing around this as like a curse. It's not a curse. It's a manifestation of reality. Someone's gonna do it. At some point, someone who is 35 is going to beat a younger challenger for the UFC title. Or be old and get a shot and claim it. Like, it's gonna happen. If you do, if you roll the dice enough, every possibility occurs, right? But 
you go middleweight and above, and that stat line doesn't matter. It's like 50-50. If we go like, oh, you 35-year-old, it's not a death knell up there. MMA, if we kind of set aside welterweight for a second, because welterweight kind of is in a weird spot, the fact that it's 170 and not 175, and there's no 165, it's a little weird. But MMA, certainly lightweight and below, is almost a different sport from middleweight and up. Which is wild to think about, but there's so many ways in which that's true. So, how did this fight go? Um, a lot of movement from Volkanovski, to be expected. He was doing a lot of lead leg kicking, I think trying to maintain distance or disrupt Taporia's base when he's coming in. Which, not a bad idea, especially given how Taporia moves. Uh, I'll talk about Taporia in a second. But Volkanovski... I don't know how much of a habit this is for him in general. I know he did it against Max, partially because Max is, you know, significantly taller than him. And so Volkanovski did a fair amount of leaning. I don't think he did it as much against uh, Makashev in either fight, to the extent that the second fight even has a lot of value there. Um, But he does do a bit of leaning, which is odd for a shorter guy, to do the lean, to lean. Um, not impossible, and not even really wrong. It's just, there are things that are wrong, and then there are things that are air quotes wrong. Things that are air quotes wrong are things that you do with a trade-off. Or, I mean, there's a very real argument to be made that high-level striking is just amateur mistakes done on purpose, <laughs> or beginner mistakes done on purpose. And, again, I think that's true. Or there might be a better way to phrase it, but the the essence of the sentiment is true. And if you choose to defend partially by leaning, um, kind of had his lead hand a little bit lower, most of the time, not always. And and, rear hand up, kind of in a guard. So not not quite a Philly shell, but a little bit similar. And when you do that, you know, leaning is not all that wrong it's just uh, there again there are trade-offs you can get out of the way but you can't counter as easily is kind of the long and the short of that it's not entirely true but if you want another example of this um uh, israel adesanya does a lot of leaning and you might go but isn't he such a great counterfighter yes he leans Um, in specific scenarios. And he has this weird, like, awkward lift hook that he throws when he's leaning back that works on occasion, but uh, got him in trouble, especially when he fought Strickland, actually. In fact, Strickland beat him when he was trying to lean largely by just straight punches and continuous forward motion. Um, Strickland, another guy who leans. If you're the one, if... If he's going forward, he doesn't. But if you start throwing offense back, he will lean back. And Sean Strickland, not a big counter guy. You know, you, you lean, you try to get out of the way, and it makes you a little bit safer. And it, you, also, you also do it if you don't want to give up real estate necessarily. 
like if you like where your feet are and you like the general position, you lean instead of taking a step back because it stops them from being able to move around. So Volk doing a lot of leaning. And that, that got him in trouble a little bit here. He's very left leg heavy when he kicks. Either lead leg, if he's orthodox or southpaw, he kicks off the back leg. He doesn't kick a lot with his right leg. Um, he did a little bit here, but I I don't know why, but I really picked up on that watching this fight. That might have been something specific to Teporia. But, so he was doing a lot of kicks to either disrupt balance or go to the body because of... I also think he was trying to block level changes. Teporia, not the biggest takedown threat in the world, but Teporia does a fair amount of... Um, strict level changing in the striking sense like you know up and down up and down up and down and if you're worried about a guy di uh dipping in and then throwing an overhand uh showing showing a body kick can dissuade them because if they duck into it suddenly it's a head kick right so again things like that Taporia did a great job of corralling volkanovsky now this one probably the single biggest key to his success because volk moves very well the highest level guys can kind of get him towards the fence max was able to on it um and taporia did and getting him against the fence was very important because in a, in space taporia didn't have a lot of success he was throwing he landed some body work i don't mean to say he had no success but that wasn't where he was going to win. He needed to corral space, control the real estate. Once he was able to do that, he started finding much more success. And this has been kind of his game, not exclusively, but this is a fundamental part of his game through his entire UFC career. So he moved very, very well. Um, it was a big part of his success. He does a fair amount of body work, body jabbing in particular, which can set up the overhand, can draw down of reaction. Uh, it, body jabbing is a good punch. And he... So, first round, I actually thought... I think most people thought Volkanovski won the first. All the judges did. It was a good round. I don't mean to say that Volk ran away with it, but I think he won it. He had a good first, like, 90 seconds, and then Teporia started finding a little bit more success with some of his body punching and aggression through kind of the middle, you know two-ish minutes, and then the back half of the round, um, Volkanovski took over again. Again, not by huge margins, but enough. Volkanovski's jab was doing some pretty decent work. Um, it got him in trouble a little bit, though, the more this wore on, because he was kind of flicking it. Not, not even the traditional flicker jab. Because um, a traditional flicker actually changes the angle of it. This was flicking as a descriptor not as a flicking as an adjective rather than a type and he's got a fairly long wingspan does volkanovsky so he was you know, extending it a little bit but Taporia is very good about keying off of your lead hand in particular and coming back at you and once he started getting a read on that it it hampered things uh second round Taporia starts closing distance a little more effectively. He bat again, kind of punches him back towards the fence. Nice little flurry. Right to the body. Comes up with a left hook. Glancing. Not really a clean punch. Follows it up with another right hand that... It doesn't land flush. It kind of clubs across the back and a little bit like the back of the head. And that seems to 
bother Volkanovski a little bit. Volk gets his back on the fence, then tries to plant and throw back. But he's a half-second slow lining up, and Teporia is very clearly already lined up and loaded and just crushes him with a right hook. Um, one punch. He lands a couple of others before the ref gets there because, you know, it's what you do. Not mad at him over it, but... It, what, the one was all that was necessary, strictly speaking. Um, slept him. So... Um, Teporia... I'm gonna make... I'm gonna talk a little bit about what he does very well. First of all, he kicks infrequently, but not non-existently. And there's an important distinction there. If you kick enough to remind someone to kind of corral them, that, that's actually important to opening up, especially punching in MMA. Um, his movement to Porteous, especially in close, is so good. He's great about keeping um, stance relative to you. He got out of position a couple of times here, because of how Volk was moving, but because Volk was moving and leaning, he wasn't really in a position to counter. Again, something to keep in mind. But Teporia, one of his biggest skill sets is that man punches, he knows how to punch with power while moving and closing distance, and do so in combination. That's a very, very um, important skill if you have it. A lot of guys struggle with this. You see, you tend to see more like the karate blitzes, and I'm, I'm not hating on that. Like, that has some value. But the part of the problem with the karate blitz is you're so committed that you have to go in a straight line. Um, Teporia, I'm going to make a comparison here, and this is not one to one i'm going to describe i'm going to use another point of comparison for some of what taporia does footwork position wise and again punching through combinations while moving if you want to see maybe the best two guys i can point you to who do this this might be heresy to you boxing fans but again best two guys that i've ever seen do this mike tyson and marvin hagler i bring up hagler because he did a lot of stance switching while doing it tyson not quite so much and Teporia does not as much stance switching even as Hagler would do. But watch the watch the mechanics. How you punch, how you step, how you reload while continuing to move, closing distance, and throwing with power. That is a very particular skill set. And when properly employed, it is devastating. And that's what was at play here. Again, kind of like a broad picture. Like, what, what happened? Teporia... Great about moving through distance, staying centered, staying grounded, knowing how to load his body, knowing how to load, again, load, load your weight, load your biomechanics so you can generate power so you're not just pushing out punches with your shoulders, and loading and throwing in combination. It's, it's not a difficult skill to acquire. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not the most difficult skill to acquire. It's very difficult to bring to bear constantly, and Teporia does it exceptionally well. Um, that man is probably going to be... He's not a big fan. He's not like a big star here in the United States, but understand something. That man is a star.
star in Spain. Two of the like the biggest football players, soccer players, like some of the biggest soccer players for some of the biggest teams that are based out of Spain, because Spain's football, Spain, Spain's football, Spain's soccer, football. If I slip up, you know I'm talking about international football, not American football, or even Aussie rules football. That's why the Aussies call soccer soccer instead of football, because they have Aussie rules football. This, there's a couple of major, major clubs out of Spain for soccer, and they've been, they've been, you know, behind that guy. Got, I mean, people with like 10, 20 million Instagram followers, like people that it's almost difficult because sports figures in the United States tend not to acquire that much popularity. I don't mean that they have none. I mean, you don't have a lot of transcendent sporting figures anymore here in the U.S. I'm not, again, not saying none, but they're more infrequent. Um, some of these soccer players, man, given the reach of that sport worldwide, enormous, enormous fan bases. And guys with enormous fan bases are shining a light on Ilya Teporia. Um and, you know, the guy's on, like, his third language speaking English because he's a native Georgian. So I think he speaks... They speak Georgian and they don't speak Russian. Uh, and then, obviously, his family moved to Spain, and that's where he's based out of, so he speaks Spanish very well. Um, that dude is about to blow up in... Dif- in especially Europe. Uh, Spain in particular, but Europe in general, that dude is about to become a big deal. A very big deal. Um, you know, the UFC was looking at taking an event to Spain even before this, um, mostly because of him. He's not the first Spanish fighter um, in the UFC. Who else has been there? Um, there was, oh, oh, why am I blanking on his name? Re- he's still there, like a real lanky guy, fights at a lightweight, I think. I'm blanking on his name. Hang on, let me... Find his name real fast. Um, Alvarez. That's it. Joel Alvarez. Is it Alvarez? Yeah. Yeah, I think he's still there. Um, I think he's the only... Um, and then they had uh, that heavyweight guy, Juan Espino. Um... But that was kind of it, like the, not a big presence in the UFC. And then Taportia came along and had enough support in that country to garner interest even before he became champion. And now, like, yeah, the UFC, again, before they were, before he, they had this, they were looking at taking some kind of an event to Spain. Almost certainly going to do so now, Um whether he'll fight there or just be... It, it sort of depends. If you do a pay-per-view there, he'll fight. If they just want to do a fight night and kind of, like, break ground, test the waters, like, okay, what what's the temperature like here? Now that we have to, you know, put on a full card instead of just, hey, it's one guy, be happy. You know, they did this with Ireland, too. Like, uh, Connor, he fought on that card, but he wasn't, like... Um, he wasn't a main eventer yet. So when they, but they occasionally will just test the waters with like, okay, we have 
personalities that draw in markets. Instead of trying to throw on a full pay-per-view there, let's at least test the infrastructure, test the fan base, like get a feel for things. And if all they do is a fight night there, which one would still be great, but he's not defending the belt on a fight night. The featherweight belt might be one of the most consequential belts in the UFC. That belt has never... That seem weird. That belt has never not mattered. Only... Only great fighters have held that belt, and all but one of them have had great reigns. Conor McGregor did not have a great reign as champion. He, didn't, he barely had a reign as featherweight champion. But if you look at it in the UFC, it's Jose Aldo... One of the all-time greats. Connor beat him, and Connor, not a great champion because he didn't do anything as champion other than hang on to it long enough to fight Nate Diaz twice and then become a two-weight world champion and just waste everyone's time. But not going to deny Connor's great achievements. Uh, that's just foolish. Then Aldo wins it back after it's he wins interim and gets promoted, and then Max Holloway, great champion. Max only loses to Volk, great champion. That belt's always mattered. Um, (laughs) You can't say that about every other division in the UFC. There's times when the heavyweight belt has not mattered. I would argue the light heavyweight belt right now still barely matters. They're trying to fix that. They're trying to fix that. But, dude, like 18 months ago... Tell me that belt mattered with a straight face. You can't do it. Women's bantamweight right now does not matter. And that's not me trying to just take a shot at Raquel Pennington. I mean, the division is like nothing. So it doesn't matter. Um, Middleweight? Middleweight's weird. Middleweight's weird. Um, Because there's been times when it hasn't. I would argue at the moment it still does. It's not like where it used to be, but you know divisions fluctuate. Um, welterweights almost always mattered. It's been a time when welterweights been a little bit. No, I'll go out on a limb. Welterweights kind of always mattered. Lightweight, the fact that the UFC cut that division at one point, lightweight has almost always mattered too. Again, they brought it back, and from BJ Penn on, it's. Uh, It's mattered. Going down, you know, bantamweight at times has not mattered, the champion, the belt, for reasons not all of which are controllable. Flyweight breaks my heart, but at times, you know, for as much as people want to crow about Henry Cejudo saving that division, um, post-Cejudo, that belt did not matter. Thankfully... You know, Figueredo and Moreno and some of the other guys, like, they clawed, and now Pantoja, they forced that belt back into relevance by just be, having great fights and, and just refusing to go away. But featherweight in the UFC, that belt has always mattered. Um, always matters when it's on the line, always feels consequential when it changes hands. Always. So, good on Taporia. I... I don't know what his next move immediately is. He called out Connor after the fact, and nobody's biting on that. Um, like that's just not happening. His his presumptive challengers go as follows, and we're kind of waiting to see a couple of fights. 
Volkanovski was throwing out the idea of an immediate rematch. Oh, please no. Not that... One, if you get knocked out, and it's clean, and this was clean, I don't really care how who you were before. I struggle with immediate rematches. Silva got one against Weidman mostly because that division was still not in a great spot. So, like... But it's... Again, I struggle with that. And... I don't need to see Volkanovski knocked out a third time in a row, please. And I think that's what would happen. Um, so I, I'm not personally not in love with that idea. But that's just me. The other two possibilities, Max Holloway, who, for stylistic reasons, Max is a tougher fight for Teporia than Volk was. Because... Like, Holloway's chin is just... Dude, people talk about the best chins in MMA. I don't know why we don't talk about Holloway in that conversation more. Just for for the record. Max Holloway has absorbed more significant strikes than anyone in UFC history. Which is shocking. He's also technically avoided the most. (laughs) Um... Even the one, like, even with his, even with a decent defensive percentage, he still absorbed more than anyone else because a lot comes at him. Um, but Max Holloway has fought. That dude's been in the trenches. He has fought the best for a long time. And if you think about some of the guys he's fought, understand that Max Holloway has never been knocked down. That dude fought Conor McGregor, Ricardo Lamos, Lamas, me, not Lamos, Ricardo Lamas. Calvin Cater, who's not a small puncher. He fought Jose Aldo twice. He fought Volkanovski. Volkanovski, not the biggest knockout threat in the world, but he's certainly nothing to sneeze at. He fought Dustin Poirier twice. Once up at lightweight, and Poirier beat him and thumped on him that whole fight. Not that whole fight, but won that fight clearly and couldn't drop him. Dustin Poirier can thump. Uh, he fought Yair Rodriguez, and dude, Yair, that man is a punishing fighter, especially kicking. He just kicks hard. Never knocked him down. That dude's chin is the stuff of legend, and that's part of the reason that Taporia that would be a tougher fight. Max, you know, also a lot more forward pressure, high volume, um, but. I would pick Teporti at this point, but that's a tougher fight for him. But the long and the short of that is Max Holloway has a fight coming up at lightweight against Justin Gagey. And Justin Gagey, as we have seen, there's ample evidence of this, that man can change you. If somebody is going to knock Max down, I wouldn't put it past Gagey to do it. So we have to see what what happens in that fight. The other possible contenders you have are Brian Ortega, for some reason, and Yair Rodriguez. Ortega should not be ranked at this point, by all logic. He hasn't won a fight in a while. He's been out for a while. I don't don't dislike Brian Ortega, but there's a criteria that I hold to here with some of these things, and he is past it. He should not be ranked. Not that he's a bad fighter, but... Because he's not. But he and Yair are going to rematch. 
and Yair and Taportia have been... Those two have been chirping at each other a little bit. Um, Mexico versus Spain could be could be something. So we'll have to, again, we have to see um, who's the other potential. Those are the most obvious contenders. Give a quick look at the rankings here. Um, the other name that got thrown out a little bit: um, Movsarevloyev, undefeated, as is Taportia. L. Oh, minor note. Somebody on Twitter like put up a picture of those two side by side and went, you know, has, has there ever been a battle of undefeated fighters for a UFC title? And I went, oh, good, you sweet, sweet summer child. <laughs> How is that? You know, I'll say this for boxing. Okay, I, I like boxing. I talk about it here on occasion as the mood strikes me, but Boxing does something that MMA does not, and I wish they would. More, much more so than MMA, boxing passes on its history. Boxing not just tells the history, but it will. Boxing fans will go out of their way to talk with newer fans about old great fights and old great fighters. The history of boxing is well-preserved. There are plenty of people who came into the sport because of, like, Canelo. And you better believe they know who Julio Cesar Chavez Sr. is. Even if, you know, he retired before some of them were born. But they know who he is. And they've seen some of his fights. Like the, you know, people still talk with reverence about the four kings of boxing. You know, Sugar Ray Leonard... Who? <laughs> Sorry, my dislike of Leonard. Um, Marvin Hagler, Roberto Duran, and Tommy Hearns. Like they still talk with reverence about those four guys, and they still show younger fans what those four guys were doing. MMA doesn't do this. There should never be a question like, "Hey, has there ever been a UFC title fight between two undefeated fighters?" Yes, yes, there has. Um, off the top of my head would just be, at a bare minimum, Rashad Evans and Lyoto Mishida. Right? It's not the most common occurrence, don't get me wrong, because there's a million ways to lose an MMA. But yes, it's happened. But for some reason, like, Mishida and versus Evans was like a generation and a half of fans ago. And we didn't pass that on. We didn't pass on that fight or who those guys were. A little bit of that might be Machida leaving the UFC. And that's, um, but like, we shouldn't forget our history. We shouldn't forget that stuff. It matters. It's part of the reason why MMA culture just sucks so much ass. Sorry. Try not to swear. There's no sense of permanence. There's no sense of what the sport is. There's just people who are in the sport and then they get burned out or they, for whatever reason, and then they leave and new fans come in and there's a, ideally more and more stick around after each time. But even then, like I've talked about this before, there's a, 
there seems to be a tipping point for a lot of fans at around the like three to five year mark somewhere in that vicinity kind of depends on some of that depends on how your favorite fighters are performing but that's kind of the life cycle i think there's a secondary life cycle around the 10 year mark and that's the one that i recently i've been a fan for longer i've been writing and podcasting about this for about 10 years now which makes me feel really old but again about five years ago about the halfway mark a lot of the people that i started watching with and started talking about fights with and they're they're gone they don't watch anymore and that's fine like no one's beholden to this but of the few that stayed a lot of them that 10 year mark i think a good chunk of the other ones left and a lot of people have been kind of dipping out a lot of long time fans have been dipping out now some of that also is um more and more seeing how the sausage gets made how the ufc maintains its power and at the expense of the fighters and all that stuff but i do wonder if there's a secondary burnout point there again like the 10-year mark but you know we haven't we haven't passed on the history of the sport and as a result people come in and they don't they're left kind of staggering around trying to figure it out because the ufc doesn't care not really there's a few old, I mean, look, there's a few names that you might recognize or remember, you know, people still remember Chuck Liddell, sure. But like, there's so much of the history that just gets swept. It's not even like swept under the rug in a nefarious sense. Like the UFC is just bulldozing forward and doesn't care about its own history. And because so much of the fan base are fans of the UFC rather than of the sport in general, they've kind of adopted that same mindset. We're goldfish out here, a lot of us. Oh, it's sad. It, I bring that up also because, again, Volkanovski losing here is a big deal. This is a, his, this is a historic figure in a lot of respects. One of the very best to ever lace up those gloves and i i don't know that he's going to be properly appreciated i hope he is i really do but i also live in a world where there's still idiots out there who anytime you talk about jose aldo throw a 13 seconds lol under it which is ludicrous jose aldo again one of the all-time greats that man's run his full career is so much better than Conor McGregor's, it's comical. But people who came in only with Conor, that's all they remember. And a bunch of people who stuck around might only remember the memes instead of the history and the success and the greatness of Jose Aldo. And it's tragic. It's freaking tragic. Yeah. So Evloyev is another possibility. Sorry for the tangent there. Arnold Allen needs... Uh, he's still good. Like, there's a little bit there that needs to be rebuilt. I think Emmett's out of the picture. Cater's probably out of the picture. Giga Chikadze's interesting. If he can put enough of a run together, he still needs a few wins. But at the moment, I I kind of like Taporia's chances against all of them. So... 
good on again good on him good on the new champion sucks to see a genuinely good guy in the sport and an all-time great you know get done like that but this is a brutal sport it's just it's just awful it's it sucks so much that so many of these guys only start getting the recognition that they deserve when it's over or when it starts being over I've been on the Volkanovski hype train for a while. I was impressed with his UFC debut. I picked him to beat Chad Mendez. I picked him, I think, in two of the Max Holloway. Like, you should have been on the Volkanovski hype train when he was... The Mendez one should have been an inflection point for a lot of you. Um, but what he did to Jeremy Kennedy was good. Then what he did to Darren Elkins was good. Then stops Chad Mendez. When he beat Jose Aldo, that should have been it. We all should have come together and said, this guy is great. And instead, it wasn't until... When did he start? When did it kind of start shifting for him? The Ortega fight helped. Um, Some of the Korean zombie fight a little bit. How he conducted himself helped. The third fight with Max was kind of the big point for a lot of people. And they went, oh, he just did that to Max Holloway. Then he loses to Islam the first time. The rebound when he beat Yair was nice. But that was just last year. And like, oh, finally, you know, two years removed. Two or three years, geez, removed from like beating Max Holloway twice in a row. To finally starting to get get the recognition and the crowd love and it's it's a shame he is not the only one to whom this has happened i'm just using him to point it out so that's it so again i would like to see volk take some time off like you don't need to fight this guy again in short order my man three knockouts in a row like that would be real bad just take some time you're a great you're an all-time great Let's just not do anything rash here, please. So we're going to wind up waiting and seeing a little bit who kind of emerges from the series of events that are to follow to figure out who's going to get the first shot at Taportia. But I like his chances. Dude, he's still got room to grow. He's only, what, 27? Yeah. Like This guy is real good, and he's only going to get better. So, that was your main event. Good for as long as it lasted, especially if you're kind of a technique nerd. Co-main event. Robert Whitaker defeats Paulo Costa via unanimous decision. 229-28-130-27. Don't agree with the 30-27. Whitaker was winning the first round. Not by a huge margin, but was winning. And then in the waning seconds, Costa lands a wheel kick that hurts him. Doesn't drop him, but it hurts him. Enough to have swung the round. Rounds two and three, Whitaker just does what Whitaker does. Good jabs. Costa's jab was working here a little bit too, so it deserves respect there. But jabs, throwing a few kicks, really nice timing reads, starting to you know add in some combination work. Robert Whitaker's great, in case you forgot. And he just kind of wore down Costa over the course of that fight. Costa didn't do badly. I certainly don't mean to imply that. But 
outside of he was never able to build sustained momentum and that's a big deal against Whitaker if you can't do that you're gonna struggle and he couldn't so he struggled uh, good enough little fight um, in a pretty bad fight Ian Machado Gary defeated Jeff Neal via split decision there was a 29-28 for Neal which was officially my scorecard and then 230-27s for Gary which are perfectly understandable um, not a lot here. Gary circling to the point where I'm not going to accuse him of running. If you're very uncharitable, you could. You'd be wrong, or you could describe what he's doing as running again. That's an uncharitable definition, and I think an inaccurate one, but a lot of moving. Kicking at distance, Neil landing a few good punches here and there, clinching, just not a lot happened here. Um, bantamweight, Marab Dwalish really defeats Henry Cejudo and presumptively retires him again. 29-28 on all three cards. Cejudo has an okay first round. He, it's a little bit back and forth, but at one point he hurt, he lands a good punch and kind of wobbles Marab. Not badly, but, you know, enough to get his attention. Um, push, but... Fight war on, and Marab does Marab things. He just keeps getting stronger. Kept pushing, kept punching, kept wrestling. He out-wrestled, dude. If you're Henry Cejudo, if you're a wrestler the caliber of Henry Cejudo, then getting pushed into the fence, double-legged, picked up, carried across the ring, and then slammed back down, that haunts your dreams, if you're a wrestler like Henry Cejudo, to get that done to you is... That's soul-crushing. Um, so, my friend, Pat, apparently hit a nice parlay. He parlayed um, Marab, Whitaker, and Taporia together. And he told me that after the fact, and I said, like, so the only one you were actually sweating there was Ilya, right? <laughs> Um, and Marab, like, I didn't phrase it this way when I previewed the fight because it's dismissive. And I never want to be dismissive in my previews. But to be very simplistic and kind of reductionist, here's what Henry Cejudo was up against here. A younger guy with an endless gas tank who's more than capable of wrestling with him. That's just a bad, re that's just a bad fight for Cejudo. I don't care that... It, those attributes are what make Marab Marab, but if you take those attributes and put them in a different fighter, even if the application is different, that's a bad fight for Henry Cejudo. That's kind of how Sterling beat him. Not quite the same endless gas tank, but good gas tank, younger, longer. Physically, I don't know if he was stronger or not, but a little bit larger physically, certainly. And can wrestle and can wrestle with him and out wrestle him under certain conditions. That's bad for him. And dude, that's what Marab does. That's all he does. This unstoppable, wacky Georgian machine. And <laughs> I think my favorite tweet after this came from uh, Piotr Jan. Just tweeted out. I know that feeling, Henry. Pull up and have a beer. <laughs>
Piotr Jan having a sense of humor, not something I expected. Um, yeah, Marav is going to fight for the belt next. I don't care if it's Vera or if it's O'Malley. I'm not saying neither of them can beat him. It is certainly possible. He is hittable. Both guys have power. Um, Vera will play an interesting guard game if you kind of pin him there. And Sean O'Malley, his timing is not impeccable, but ex- but very, very good. And the man hits very hard. So not saying that it's impossible for either of those guys to beat him. I am saying I'm picking Marab to beat either of them. Over five rounds, like, here's what you need to stop this guy. You need lights-out takedown defense. And I mean lights-out. You need exceptional clinch-breaking. Because even if he can't get you down, if he can get you to the fence and get a hold of you, you're, suddenly your clock is, your time is running out. So you need to stop takedowns. You need to stop him from making contact, and you need to be able to break free very, very quickly if he does. You need to be able to do this at a ludicrous pace for five rounds, and you need to be able to put stuff in front of him consistently that dissuades him from doing what he does. Because Marab doesn't really have a plan B. His plan A is to do his A game, and if it doesn't work, keep doing it, because eventually it does. And I'm sorry, I don't like either Chito Vera or Sean O'Malley's chances to do that to him. Not saying it's impossible, I don't like their chances. Um, That guy's probably wearing gold, sooner rather than later. And kicking everything off, I got this one wrong. So Anthony Hernandez defeats Roman Kopula via rear naked choke, 323 of the second. This was a good fight. I don't feel bad about getting this wrong because I've seen how good Kopilov is and I thought he could give Hernandez problems. And lo and behold, he did. Not enough to win the first round. I think Hernandez won it. But look at how this fight plays out. Kopilov bothers him, especially with kicks. Because Kopilov kicks really hard. A few of those body kicks to Hernandez, Hernandez, he stopped for just a second. Like, okay. Hernandez eventually overwhelmed him with pressure, and if you want another example of kind of the dangers of one hand up, leaning back, they're like double and triple kind of right hooks that Hernandez would throw when he's closing distance. Kopilov's leaning and trying to move, but because he's leaning, his head's way back, so his movement's not quite as good, and he kind of gets hit a little bit at the end of that because Hernandez is still bowling into him forward. Um, so I... I there's a lot about Kopilov's game and what he did here that I did like. Just a little bit behind Hernandez in the fence wrestling in particular, Hernandez got him there. Once he made contact, it was hard to get free. Not impossible. Kopilov did get free a couple of times, but it just it was clear that how that was going was not sustainable for him. Hernandez eventually gets him to misread a couple of positions and either try to split his base or try not to split his base when he should have. Gets him down. Better top control, gets the back. I give Kopilov a mountain of credit for fighting off the first two rear naked choke attempts that Hernandez threw up. The second one in particular was real tight, and Kopilov, I don't know exactly how he did it. Some A little bit of hand fighting, a little bit of shoulder manipulation. He got out and then got choked again because Hernandez dug it back, but... This is one of those fights where, despite losing, I don't think either guy came away from this looking bad in terms of Kopilov. 
Kopilov took this on shorter notice. This was supposed to be Ikram Alaskarov. I like that fight. I don't want them to remake it. Hernandez is a problem for this division. Give him someone ranked. Because he came into this fight at 15. Um, give him... Have my rank, have the rankings up here. Um, give him Paul Craig. Or... Some guys moved around recently. Um... Yeah, give him a Paul Craig, give him a Roman Delidze. Uh Someone in that, I wouldn't even hate him and Nasruddin Imovov. Imovov won't accept that fight, because like eight should not be fighting 15, but you give him like Craig or Jack Hermanson, maybe even Kamzad, if Kamzad can ever figure stuff out. Um, Hernandez is a problem for this division, and it's going to be a bigger problem going forward. Like That guy's good, he's getting better. He is relentless. He is he is very similar to Marab. He attempts a lot of takedowns, and he doesn't tire. So that dude's a problem. And Kopulov's not going to be all that far behind him, despite the setback. So that was your main card. Really good main card. Okay, Neil and Gary. That bleh. other people hated that more than I did. I see, I've seen a lot other a few other people being slightly more apologistic towards it than I am. Didn't like the fight. It's not going on my worst fights of the year list. So, good pay-per-view card. Thumbs up. As for the rest of this, um, Amanda Lemos defeats Mackenzie Duran via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. This is the one I was kicking myself over. Duran made a fight out of this because Mackenzie Duran is, for all of her faults, she is tough as nails, and she is undeterred. Like she took a beating at different points in this fight. A little surprised at no 10-8s, I think, for um, Lemoshin. What was it, the second round? This was close to being stopped. But not deterred. Came out of the for the third round, did Dern, and just immediately got after her. Like I appreciate her gameness. Some of her skills are incredible, but she cannot bring them to bear in a cohesive way. And I really should have known better. Because this was winnable for her. That became very, very clear. I'm not trying to dunk on Lemos here. But I, you can't watch this fight and tell me that this was unwinnable for Mackenzie Dern. But the problem with Dern, and a lot of other fighters have done this, there's a lot good, but they're not consistent, and they can't bring everything to bear harmoniously, and they will lie to you about how good they are, and I don't mean like a fighter lying about how good they are, they do that all the time. I mean, they will deceive you. Because you can see the potential, and you want it to be realized, and it just never is. And I'm, I'm kind of I'm kinda done picking Mackenzie Dern in fights that matter. Um, heavyweights, Marcos Rogerio de Lima defeated Junior Toffa via leg kicks and punches, 114 of the second. Respect to Junior Toffa for taking the fight on short notice, but he was not ready for DeLima, and DeLima let calf kicked him down. Yeah. Um, Bantamweights, Rinya Nakamura defeated Carlos Vera via unanimous decision, 30-27. Some fun grappling exchanges here between these two. Nakamura, a very good wrestler. Uh, Carlos Vera, I think he took this on... Did he take this on short notice? I want to say he... I want to say he... Did. This was supposed to be somebody else. 
but I can't remember who. Um, let me check real fast, see if I can find that. Yeah, it's supposed to be Brady Heastand. Um, so Vera come, came in, does a lot of um, Ryan Hall-style leg entanglements because he trains with Ryan Hall. So Nakamura had to navigate a lot of those. Um, good control, not great ground and pound. Nakamura mentioned he, he uh, broke one of his hands, I think, in the first round, so might explain some of that. But fun stuff, really like Nakamura, a lot of upside to him. And you know what? I'm not going to dunk too hard on Vera for a shorter notice performance like this. Like to see what he can do with a full camp because there's some good stuff there. Um, light heavyweight, Zhang Mingyang defeated Brenson uh, Hibero via knockout punches, 141 of the first. Mediocre light heavyweights. Um, nice, pretty standard 1-2-3 from Zhang. Steps in with a jab, follows up with a right hand, left hook. Uh, on the earlier prelims, Danny Barlow defeated Josh Quinlan via TKO punches, um, 118 of the third. Barlow winning most of this. Quinlan starting to figure some stuff out in the second round. Third round, Quinlan gets a little bit too reckless, a little bit too impatient, closing distance. Barlow steps back, chops him with a left hand, badly hurts him, drops him a couple of times. Eventually gets the standing stoppage. Good stoppage from the ref. Others would have waited for another knockdown. Could have stepped in earlier. I'm not, cry- I'm not crying late stoppage here at all. In fact, again, to the contrary, appreciate the fact that despite Quinlan getting back up to his feet and moving around, the referee stepped in and was like, no, we're, we're done here. Quinlan's right eye was shut completely at the end of that. Like, so good job from the ref. When I say like you could have stepped in a hair a little bit earlier even, that's more about like the barrage that was coming down on him, not that I think the referee did a bad job. The referee did a good job. Um, Oban Elliott defeated Val Woodburn via unanimous decision, 230-27 and a 29-28. Not a lot to talk about there. And kicking everything off, Miranda Maverick beat Andrea Lee via unanimous decision, 230-27 and a 29-28. Um, yeah, Maverick just generally, you know, able to do better work on the feet, get distance, takedowns, you know, a lot of what Miranda Maverick just does. That was the card. Your bonuses, fight of the night. I didn't mention it when I talked about it, but went to Amanda Lemos and Mackenzie Dern. I don't hate that. I might have gone Whitaker and Costa personally, but um, Lemos and Dern was fun. Again, momentum swings. Um, was a good enough fight. Actually, if you haven't seen this card, what am I recommending? Main event, Whitaker Costa is not bad. Marab and Cejudo. Hernandez and Kopilov was good for, you know, a two and a half round fight. Lemotion Dern is fun. Other than that, I mean... Other than that, I, th- those would be my recommendations, I think. Um, performances went to Ilya Taporia, Anthony Hernandez, and Zhang Ming Young. No objection to any of that. Um, oh, for the record. Because the California State Athletic Commission does still release um, purses. We know what people made... Purse-wise, not necessarily sponsor or other discretionary bonuses from the UFC. Um, but for the record, what we have here, uh, Taporia, 350K, no win bonus. He's flat. I think Volkanovski's flat, too. He was he got 750K. I think somebody shared the actual document, and that will that has on it whether or not there is a win bonus attached. 
And I don't think Volkanovski had one either. I think he was flat. Um, Whitaker, Whitaker's on 100 and 300, which is an interesting split, but he won, so 400K total. Costa, Paul Costa making $250,000 a fight. That's weird to me. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't hate on the guy. Get get paid, man. Um, Marab's on 105 and 105. Henry Cejudo only what? Henry Cejudo only on 150 and 150. I mean, so he lost only 150. Man, he when that's all said and done for this fight, he's probably walking away with only like 30 grand between taxes and payments and you're paying for camps and coaches and everything. That's that's sad. Um, yeah, Ian Gary, 110. He's 50 and 50. Jeff Neal, 108. Hernandez is 66 and 66. So do the math if you're so inclined. Kopulov, 80. Lemos is 80 and 80. Mackenzie Duran makes 200 grand a fight. Good for her. Every, all these people are underpaid. Um, Marcos Rogerio de Lima is 100 and 100. Justin uh, Junior Toff only 23, which he's only on his like third UFC fight. So him being like 23 and 23, well, that's horribly underpaid is kind of the standard. Rinya Nakamura only on 23 and 23. He's relatively new. Uh, Vera came in on 12 and 12. It looks like. Then next ones, it's everyone's like 10 and 10 or 12 and 12. Um, and then Miranda Maverick and Andrea Lee are Maverick 75 and 75, Lee 70 and 70. So 150 for Maverick and then 70 for Lee. Yeah, just take a moment and appreciate the following, everyone, if you will. Your curtain jerker, Miranda Maverick, made as much when this is all when the, made as much in purse money as a great former two-weight world champion on your pay-per-view card. I don't know who Henry Cejudo's manager is, but that man probably got done dirty somewhere in the contracts. Now again, obviously, that. so if you want to tack on, again, 50K for each of the bonus winners, feel free to do more math there, but because California still discloses that, that's what we know what that is. So if you want my full report, it's in the MMAZona411mania.com. Give it a read. Always appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. All right, let's move on because the UFC is going to. Uh, this coming Saturday, we have UFC on ESPN Plus 95. This is headlined by Brandon Moreno and uh, Brandon Royville. There can be only one Brandon. I'm kidding. They're not fighting over the rights to the first name. Um, these two fought before. Uh, when did they fight before? Hang on. Uh, they fought in uh, 2020. Moreno, right, 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 Royville. Um, that was the fight that got Moreno his title shot, if memory serves. I think that was the one where Royville's shoulder fell out. Um, but we're getting a rematch there. I don't hate it. We're in Mexico City, I forgot to mention. We're not in the UFC warehouse. Uh, co-main event, I think the co-main event is five rounds, too. I'll have to double-check that, but I want to say that I heard that. Um, Yair Rodriguez and Brian Ortega, co-main event. So that's, again, this is a, this is a card. Hmm. All right, let me set up my spreadsheet here because need to reset to keep track of where we are. This is UFC and ESPN Plus 95. 
and clear that column. And yes, we are set. Actually, let me let me bump this down one spot because it will make keeping track of some of this easier. Sorry, you guys need to listen to me organize my spreadsheets a little bit here. All right. Main event, Brandon Moreno, Brandon Royval. Their first fight, I remember it. Again, the, the shoulder fall, it was a good fight. Five rounds, Mexico City is a big deal. Um, Roy, uh, Moreno, of course, a native Mexican. Royval, I think, has Mexican heritage. He's fr He was born in Denver, but... I might be wrong there, so sorry. Forgive me if I'm incorrect. Um, I just I seem to recall him mentioning that, but I I could very well be misremembering. So Moreno coming off of uh, losing that his belt to Alessandre Pantoja. What a war that was last year. Th that was my fight of the year for 2023, if memory serves. Um, he's taken not a not a full year off, but a good chunk of time and dude in 2023 just for the record 2022 he fights davison figueredo loses um in their third fight that was a pretty tough fight he beats kai carol france for the interim belt fights uh, that, that's his 2022 those two fights and that kai carol france fight was not easy 2023 he fights davison figueredo and wins and then has one of the all-time great wars in July. Like, if we go back to 2020 as well, like here he is, 2022 to 2023. In 2020, sorry, 2020. So 2020, Juicier Formiga, Brandon Royval, Figueredo in their draw. Figueredo again, Figueredo again, Kaikara France, Figueredo a fourth time, and Alessandre Pantoja. I'm not blaming that man one single solitary iota for taking what eight months off ish after that fight with Pant like dude you recover man <laughs> you're good <laughs> um i expect a good fight but i'm not trying to dismiss royval here i'm really not but i think moreno is he's a little bit of a harder puncher a little bit more technical with his striking as well Royval's demonstrated some weaknesses to wrestling he's a very good grappler is Royval but I I picked Moreno the first time around I don't expect this fight to go the same way their previous one did please let me be very clear about that in terms of like how it looked but I don't really have a problem picking Moreno here. I just, and mostly, I expect a really good fight. But uh, I don't have too many problems picking Brandon Royval, excuse me, picking Brandon Moreno to win that. As my cats decide that fiddling around in the bathroom is a good idea. I hope you're not stuck in the tub. I'm not coming to get you until. <laughs> After I'm done recording. 
Um, let's have a look at the odds here for that, just for the heck of it. Um, you do no, yes. Yeah, Moreno's two and a half to one favorite in most places. Okay. Um, co-main event. Again, another rematch. We had Yair Rodriguez and Brian Ortega fight. Ortega had the shoulder injury. Um, Rodriguez was winning that fight before that. The layoff's a bit of a problem for Ortega. Man, I, I don't dislike Brian Ortega, so please don't misunderstand me with what I'm about to say. He's got a lot of tools. But his last win was 2020 over the Korean Zombie. He's 1-3 in his last four. Now, I'm going to give him a little bit of an understandable thing here. Like, Okay, 2018, you got beat by Max Holloway pretty badly. But that's Max Holloway. Then you take two years off for injury-related issues. Come back, you beat Chan Sung Jung in a good fight. You get a title shot, and you give Volkanovski a bit of a heart attack in the fourth round, but mostly you just lose that whole fight. You make a go of it, you make a fight of it, but you lose. So you lose to Volkanovski and Holloway. Oh no, only two of the very best the division's ever seen and the sport has ever seen. Then your shoulder injury against Yair Rodriguez, and it's the same shoulder that you had repaired after the Holloway loss. That's a bad sign. That was July of last that was July of twenty two, so over a year. Um we're like a year and a half here. Not quite a year and a half, but pretty close. It's a long time to be out. And I'm not saying he can't win this. Brian Ortega, when he was on, had a wonderful ability to snatch victory. He was great about always being in the fight. He is... His ability to catch deep submissions, like snapping your fingers, is exceptional. That is a great skill. So, I will not be surprised I will not be surprised if he wins this fight. I would not. Have, I was not going to be surprised if he had won their first one. But has Yair fought since then? I feel like he has. Yeah, he lost. Okay, a couple of times. Yeah, he beat Josh Emmett for the interim belt and then didn't have a whole lot for Volkanovski. It was July of last year, so. I will not be surprised if Ortega wins. Not at all. But I don't have a lot of reason to pick him because Rodriguez has been more active, is very dangerous, and yeah, I just, I've said this before, man, Rodriguez is a mean fighter. I mean, that is a compliment. Like, that guy's kicks in particular, you you watch them and you just know those hurt. Not everybody has that. The guys who have just those mean, powerful kicks that you watch and you wince, like, he's got those. So, I hopefully we have a better fight than last time. Hopefully there's no injury. But I don't have a good reason to pick against Yair Rodriguez here. Much as I'm not the biggest fan of him... I think this is a winnable fight for him. 
All right, moving on. Because after this, they are, look, they're making this card largely to, uh, in large respect, to appeal to the local demographic. There is nothing wrong with that. But I'm somewhat obliged to point out, (laughs) for the record, there's some soft matchmaking here. Softer matchmaking. So lightweight, we have Daniel Zellhuber and Francisco Prado. So Zellhuber, 14-1, I believe 1-1 in the UFC. 2-1, excuse me. Um, Won his last two. Uh, Lando Venata and Christos Yagos. Good rebounds after dropping to the decision to Trey Ogden. And Francisco Prado, Argentinian, 12-1, 1-1 in the UFC, lost to Jamie Malarkian and beat Otman Azaitar. A little bit of an upset there, if memory serves. Um, the reach and a lot of the dimensions favors Zell Huber, who is a big lightweight. He's 6-1. We're like 77 inches of reach. I think my size, fighting at a lightweight. I have to cut off a limb to make 155. <laughs> Um, I think Zell Huber's the favorite. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I agree with that. So I'm going to go with Zell Huber. I'm not going to only pick, I don't think I'm only going to pick the, uh, the Mexicans here, but I don't think it's unfair to say the UFC is stacking this event to try and be favorable to the local market. Bantamweight, Raul Rosas Jr. and Ricky Tercios, speaking of guys, they want to be a big deal. I'm actually a little bit torn on this one. So Raul Rosas Jr., 8-1, 2-1 in the UFC. Um, He's a problem in the first round. I don't know how much of a problem he is beyond that. And the way he gassed and faded against Christian Rodriguez was not encouraging. And then there's Ricky Tercios, who is... 12-3, 2-1 in the UFC, but has had some of the weirdest fights I've ever seen in my life. He goes life and death with Brady Heastand in that season of the Ultimate Fighter finale, right? Life and death, wild fight. Fights Eamon Zahabi, and neither of them, I don't think that either of them landed double-digit strikes in any round. Just weird then has that weird fight with Kevin Natividad. I don't know what to get out of this guy. I know what the UFC wants to happen here, but I wonder if Tercios isn't going to spoil the party. <sighs> Am I going to pick Tercios here? Just to be spiteful. I'm pretty. Con- I'm fairly confident my my. I've not gone negative on a card yet. I've always been gotten more right than wrong. This one might be the one that changes that, just for the record. Can I see Tercio surviving a tough first round and then beating Rosas late? I can. I still think the UFC is being careful with Rosas because they want him to be a big deal. And I don't think they would give him this fight under these circumstances if they weren't fairly confident he's going to win. All right, go with Rosas, but I'm rooting for Ricky Tercios because 
I love when the apple cart gets upset like that. Uh, Strawweight, Yasmin Hauregi and Sam Hughes. This is your get-well fight for Hauregi. She had two wins in the UFC, was looking pretty good, and a lot of talk. A, a lot of coaches and a lot of people who talk to coaches and whatnot were talking about this is this is somebody to pay attention to. Then she comes out and gets stopped in 20 seconds by Denise Gomes. Um, that was not supposed to happen, for the record. Um, this is her get-well fight. Sam Hughes had a rough start to her UFC career, but she's 3-1 and one in her last four. Hmm. This is tougher than I think they might have expected when they put this together, just for the record there. Yeah, look, Haregi's a pretty big favorite around like the minus 500 mark most places it looks like. I'm going to pick Haregi, but let the record reflect. I do not believe those odds are an accurate representation of the probabilities here. Just throwing that out there. If you can get like plus 300 on Sam Hughes and you don't mind losing, um, you're going to find like little value bets like that. That that would be a thought. Um, but I'm picking uh, I'm picking Hauregi. A-U-R-E-G-U-I. Misspelled that. There we go. But again, you especially if you're odds makers, man, like I <laughs> Sam Hughes is a has recently turned into a the kind of fighter that would make this closer than minus than her being like plus three fifty. That's all I'm saying. And kicking off the main card, Manuel Torres and Chris Duncan. You know, long rivalry between uh, Scotland and Mexico I'm not aware of here. So Torres is 14-2. and 2-0 two. Uh, two in the UFC. Wins over Frank Camacho and Nicholas Mata. Both of those were good wins, by the way. I remember those. Um, both came from last year. Duncan, 11-1. and one. I think he won his debut. He's 2-0 in the UFC. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that, I didn't think he beat Omar Morales, but technically he did. And then um, I was only really remembering the win over Yanal Ashmuz. Um, this is a fairly close fight. Duncan's pretty good. Um, Yeah, the odds are very close in leaning Torres. I think that's what I'm going to go as well, but not a lot of confidence here. Duncan's good. My biggest concern for Duncan, in all honesty, is the altitude, because Mexico City in the freaking clouds. Um, Get there early, acclimate, get used to the pollution, because the air quality there is not very good. Um, okay, so prelims, we have Christian Quinones and Hani Barcelos. Quinones, in the end, I'm going to, for the record, I'm going to pick Barcelos here because I like him and he's good. Uh, Quinones, 18-4, and 1-1 one one in the UFC, beat Khalid Taha, then lost to Kyung Ho Kong. Yeah, I'm going with Barcelos, who's 6-4 and four in the UFC. Ooh, I don't know, though. Hang on. I, got, I might have to rethink this. He is just one and four in his last five. Losses to Timur Valia, Victor Henry, Umar Namagamadov, and Kyler Phillips. He might be past it. 
He could very well be past it. I think the UFC is kind of banking on him being past it. I'm still going with Barcelos, but this might be one of those la- like this is one of those potentially last times I pick a guy. Kind of fights for him. Um, flyweights, there's f- <laughs> there's four flyweight fights on the prelims. Um, Jesus Santos Aguilar and Mateus Mendonce. So Mexico versus Brazil here. Um, Aguilar, nine and two. To do one and one in the UFC, lost to Tetsuro Tyra. Oh, the horror. And beat Shannon Ross his last time up very quickly. Oh, he knocked him. He locked, knocked him out like a like a board knocked him over. That was a good win. Um especially coming off of that loss. Again, losing to Tetsuro Tyra is Oh no! Like a sarcastic. Oh no! The horror. Losing to one of the best up-and-coming guys in the division. However, will you recover? But he did recover, and that's kind of the important thing. Uh, Mendonce, ten and two. What? Zero oh and two in the UFC? Yeah, losses to Javid Basarat. No shame there. And then Nate Manus. That's a little bit more troubling. Manus isn't bad, but um, I don't have a whole lot of problems going Aguilar here. Um, odds are actually with Mendonce. Interesting. I'm, again, I'm going with Aguilar. I know. I note that. I'm not. Uh, I pick a lot of favorites because a lot of favorites are the favorite for a reason. But as y'all should know by now, I am not beholden to them. I mean, last oh, sorry, last note about UFC 298. Favorites there went 11 and one. The last time all favorites won on a UFC card was like. I remember this event. I can't remember the name. It was in Buffalo, New York. It was headlined by... I want to say Derek Lewis and Shamil Abdurrahimov. Let me find this, because I want to be very... I want to be correct. Um, it wasn't two, UFC 210. Was it not in Buffalo? I know it was in New York, and it wasn't New York City. Because 210 was the first time it... Were they talking about UFC 210, maybe? Uh, let me have a quick look at that. Did all the favorites win there? No, Weidman wasn't the favorite. Well, Weidman would have been the favorite. Um, Great, you're going to make me search through Derek Lewis' main events. All right, no, 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 that's the apex. No, this was pre-COVID. So that's Kansas. No, that was his fight with JDS. Um, not 230. Maybe 230? Not Lewis versus Hunt. That was in New Zealand. Lewis versus Brown. Albany. Albany. Yeah, 2016. I'm 90% sure this is it. Um, let me take a quick look. So, Lewis over Abdurahimov, and Ganu over Anthony Hamilton, Anderson over Sean O'Connell, John Volante over Safarbek Safarov, Justin Kish over Ashley Yoder, Brown over Kamozi, Mershart, Sanchez, 
Burgos, Jacquezi, James. I would bet this is the one. And I remember that partially because Jeff and I got into a little bit of a thing over that one. I, 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 said, that, I said that event probably should have been canceled because they lost their main event like the week before and it was just not a very good card on paper and it turned out to be an okay night of fights. So Jeff did the, you know, it's these cards, do you know how, you know, you, it's always these cards that nobody talks about that deliver the best action. And because I knew he was going to say that, I went back through like the last two years of UFC cards and went, okay, which of these were slept on on paper? And I made that list. Okay, which of these over-delivered relative to expectations? At the time, it was one out of every six. One out of every six of those, like, fight nights that you thought were forgettable and just, yeah, that turned out to be, boy, that was a really good night of fights. One out of six. I don't think that ratio was held. I think it slipped further. But point being, favorites are favorites, but MMA is very volatile. And Taporia was the only dog last night that cashed. So, anyway. Point being that, you know, you should know I'm not beholden to the odds. Um... Was um, Aguilar and Mendont. Make sure I wrote that down. Okay. Next up, also at flyweight, Edgar Scheider, as in Daniel Lacerda. I feel bad making fun of Daniel Lacerda these days, but dude is 11 and 5, 0 and 4 in the UFC. His fight with um, Edgar Scheider as okay. This is the rematch. They went to a no contest in their previous fight. Um, Scheider, as I think, had a standing guillotine, and Lacerda. Looked like he went out. He did not go out. The ref stepped in because it looked like he went out, and they changed it to a no contest. Was a pretty good fight the first time around. Was that the other way? And Lacerda had it. I don't remember. I remember how it ended. I don't remember who was in the winning position when it was all said and done. I think it was Shardas. Um Suffice to say, though, I I don't really pick Lacerda at this point. Going with Shardas. Uh, let's see, lightweight Claudio Pules and Ferris Ziam. Um, Pules is from Peru. Had a good run. He lost his UFC finals to Martin Bravo, who I think washed out. Uh, went on a good winning streak, actually, and then lost to Dan Hooker his last time out. No shame there. Took a step up in class, and you weren't. And that happens. Um, Ferris Ziam. Um, let's see. A couple of losses in the UFC to Don Madge and Terrence McKinney. Four wins over Jamie Malarkey, Luigi Vendramini, Michael Figlak, and then Jai Herbert. The Jai Herbert win was pretty nice. Um, Zeom's not bad. This is... This might be an uphill fight for Pulez. I like a lot of Pulez's game, but... Ziam's been a bit more consistent. Mm, tough one. I'm going to go with Ziam, but... I don't feel very good about that one. Um, Pulis is the kind of fighter that things go pretty dramatically one way or the other. Uh, let's see. Next up, flyweight Luis Rodriguez and Dennis Bondar. Um, need to do Rodriguez 16 and two overall lost on the contender series 
in 2020. Since then, has won five in a row and is making his UFC debut. It's a pretty good run to get back in. Um, Bondar... Oh, he had a tough debut, if memory serves. He's 0-2, had the arm injury against Malcolm Gordon, and then had a weird fight with Carlos Hernandez. Went to a technical decision. Uh, Bondo's one of those guys that I want to like, but not really demonstrated consistency and skill. This is very nearly a pick a lot of places. Do I want to give Bondar one more shot? Mm. Yeah, I think I do. I think I'll go with Rodriguez. Not by the greatest of margins, and Bondar might very well pull that one off, but. Uh, uh, flyweights again, Victor Altamirano and Felipe Dos Santos. Is this our required set of Brazilians? No, Altamirano is Mexican. Sorry. Um, Altamirano, 12-3. and 2-2 two and two in the UFC. <laughs> Losses to Carlos Hernandez and Tim Elliott. In between those, he has wins over Daniel Cerda and Vinicius Salvador. Okay, you fought a tough split decision loss against Carlos Hernandez. Won a couple... Weren't ready for Tim Elliott. Fair enough. Um, Felipe Dos Santos, 7-1. and 1-1 one. One and one in the UFC, I want to say. 0-1. Oh Lost to Manel Cop. Hmm. Think of a different Dos Santos there for a second. Did flyweight. Um, another one that's going to be hard to predict. I think this is Altamirano's. Odds are actually pretty heavily with Felipe Dos Santos. Um, I am going to go with the odds on this one. I I don't feel strongly enough about my about what would be my pick there. So let's go with uh, Dos Santos. But again, I don't feel great about that, and, and I don't think the odds there are reflective. They're like minus 300 for all, for Dos Santos. Like, yeah, you're really asking for trouble there. And then kicking everything off at featherweights, we have Eric Silva and Mohamed Naimov. Um, Silva is Venezuelan. 9-2. Lost his UFC debut to TJ Brown. Um, Naimov, by contrast, 10-2. and 2-0 in the UFC. Dude, his win over Nathaniel Wood, I did not see that one coming. That was a real good win for him. Um, he's good. He's very good. I have no problem, no reservations whatsoever about picking Naimov here. There's a few of those Tajikistan fighters that are coming on. Um, that are going to be some... Again, he's not the only one. There's a few of them, and heaven help you if you step in front of them, because you're in for a fight. All right, that's the card. Um, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, yeah, 13 fights. All right, that's acceptable. Saturday, MMAZone411Mania.com. Please do stop by, say hello. I always appreciate it. All right, um, my only bit of news at the moment is that Dana White announced UFC 300's main event. 
at the post-fight presser for UFC 298. For the light heavyweight title, Alex Pereira and Jamal Hill. Here's the thing. I'm going to be very clear about this. UFC 300, as it stands right now, is a very good card. It's very good. Let me tell you what it's not. It is not a historical milestone. And you know what? If the UFC hadn't come out and overhyped this event when they didn't have the personnel in place to back it up, we would not be having problems with this card. I, I, I would... I pretty much guarantee this. If the UFC had come out and said, yeah, we got UFC 300 coming up, it's going to be a good card. And then we kind of got to where we got, we'd all be okay. Because it's a good card. Like, What's there to complain about this? Here's the only thing you have to complain about on, that's related to this card. Dana White in particular was hyping up since uh, for months that this is going to be the most ridiculously stacked card they've ever put together from start to finish and it's going to be a historic touchstone it is not that it is a very good card and i am not complaining please don't misunderstand me i am not out here saying this card sucks i am not out here saying there's a no none of that you have great fights on this card you have a card that top to bottom is very good right now. And if that was all you'd said it was going to be, no one could complain about it. You'd have some malcontents going, where's the super fight? Like we got at 100 and 200 and everyone would kind of tell them to shut up. But you came out and said, this is going to be blah. And it's not. And I, no one's wrong for saying that. You're wrong to say that this card sucks because they're not delivering what they promised. No, they're not delivering what Dana White said they were going to deliver. Um, the people aren't in place to do it. Full stop. They were never in place to do it, but the UFC and Dana White in particular has never let reality get in the way of a good story, right? We have right now on paper a very good card. I'm going to be happy with that. My only question about this, and you know they had to have monkeyed with this. A lot of people were making noise that Pereira and Hill were going to main event UFC 301. Because UFC 301 will be in Rio de Janeiro. And putting Alex Pereira in Brazil just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Instead, Lobster. Um, no. Dana White mentioned like at the post-right press that we offered Leon Edwards three different fights, and he said yes to all of them. And I don't know who that would have been. Um, presumably what? Shavkat, Bilal. Who's the other guy? Who's somebody else that that could have reasonably been um, at welterweight? Um, Gilbert Burns, maybe? There wouldn't do a third Usman fight. Or fourth Usman fight at this point. Because he already beat Covington. So presumably it was like Bilal Muhammad, Shavkat Rachmanov, and Gilbert Burns. Well, guys, Bilal Muhammad and Shavkat Rachmanov are practicing Muslims. It's Ramadan. 
UFC 300 falls very, very close to that. And again, like that Ramadan is, I forget exactly how long. It's basically a month of no consuming food from sunup to sundown. Training under those conditions is ridiculous. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's ridiculous to try and do that. And, I mean, you had Shavkat come out and say, because there were, people were floating around like, yeah, might Shavkat and Leon maybe be in, who knows? And Shavkat came out and said, yeah, I'm not fighting close to Ramadan. If that was it, I would leave it at that. But my man, Shavkat Rachmanov was never going to be on UFC 300 because Shavkat Rachmanov cannot get into the country. He is buddy-buddy with Ramzan Kadyrov, who is under who is a dictator, the dictator of Chechnya, and Kadyrov is under sanctions from various governments around the world. And being close with him gets you sanctioned. This is why Tyson, dude, Tyson Fury's association with Daniel Kinahan means he can't get into the United States either. And Kinahan is, don't get me wrong, an unsavory like organized crime guy, but he's also, to the best of my knowledge, not guilty of the human rights violations that it all evidence points to Kadyrov being guilty of. So, no, you, you ain't getting in. That's why you're not at UFC 300, not Ramadan. Ra- that would be enough, by the way, but you, that's a little bit of a misdirection here. Like He's not fighting here or a bunch of places in Europe because... He's not, he's, because Kadyrov is sanctioned and they're not letting him in, so. Geopolitics, they do matter in international business. And that's what you are if you're an MMA fighter. You fight and you do business internationally. So, that was that, so look, this is kind of what the UFC had on offer. And it was all they had on offer. And like I said, I am not here complaining about... What we have right now on paper for UFC 300. It's a good it's a good card. I hope it holds up. I really do. Because there's a lot that's good there. It's not what the UFC was hyping it up to be. And it's not unfair to say they overhyped it. It's not unfair to say that. Alright. Um, that concludes our UFC 300 watch. Until other regular news comes about like injuries or whatnot. Um, all right, let me check Twitter, see if anything crazy has happened. If not, plugs, and then we will get out of here. Okay, nope. Nothing new on Twitter in that respect, so plugs. Monday, probably when you're listening to this, if the general statistics are any indicator. Monday evening at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the W2M Network podcast families, I will be on Damn You Hollywood, myself and Mark Radulich, and we subject Alexis Haina to this. Who's on this? I think it's just me and Mark at the moment. We will be reviewing Madam Web, and I will be... I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave it at that. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to react when I have to sit down, look Mark Radulich in the eye, and know that he did this to me. I don't know what I'm going to do. I will do something. There will be a podcast. I promise not to pull a Chris Stuckman and just spend 16 minutes droning on and on about anything other than the topic at hand. 16 minutes of nothing. What a joke. Have some professional integrity.
You don't want to talk about the movie, fine. Don't talk about the movie. Don't spend 16 minutes not talking about the movie. Jackass. All right. Um, so we'll be reviewing that. I just finished writing up my review for MLW's Burning Crush, I think is what they called it. Um, it's the other half of the material they taped at Superfight, uh, released in one block, so you can find that in the wrestling zone of 411mania.com. This Friday, uh, WWE SmackDown is the go-home show for Elimination Chamber. They taped it on this last Friday because traveling from Friday to Perth, Australia on a Saturday for a card in prime time in Australia on Saturday. It's, it's ridiculous. Don't you, they? It would be ridiculous to subject anyone to that. So, um, but I will be covering that when it happens on Friday. I don't know who's covering Elimination Chamber. It's starting at like 5 a.m. Eastern. It's 3 a.m. for me. I might. Well, if they ask, I'll say yes. And then I'll just be up forever and cover Elimination Chamber. Stay up and then cover the UFC event and then sleep for 24 hours after that. Because I am. That's how that would go. That's absolutely how that would go. Oh, well, we'll see. Uh, all right. That's what I got. And then, of course, next Saturday, sorry, next Sunday, we will be back here recording. So Monday for when you get it. We will review UFC on ESPN Plus 95. And March 2nd. Yes, we will preview UFC on ESPN Plus 96. Because the UFC has no problem watering down their product. Um, this event is head, and we're back in the warehouse. And this event is headlined by Jarzinho Rosenstruck and Shamil Gaziev. What a terrible card! Holy crap! Vitor Petrino, Tyson Pedro, Alex Perez, Mohamed Makayev, Eric Anders, Jamie Pickett, Umar Nurmagomedov. Okay, watching Umar do his thing is always cool, but Matt Schnell and Steve Ursig. Eh, I don't hate that. I don't hate Ursig. Joel Alvarez and Ludovic Klein, Eamon Zahavi and Javid Basharat, Christian Leroy Duncan, Claudio Hiberio. This is just the most utterly forgettable, uninteresting, unimportant card the UFC has put on in a while. And... Okay. Part of the background for this event. This event would have marked the promoter's debut in Saudi Arabia. However, it was moved to the... So Ariel Hawani said the local organizer was seeking a deeper, more high-profile card than what was offered. Dan White, probably lying, said that it was, um, d- wasn't due to a weak lineup. It was due to <laughs> a couple of fights they wanted not being ready, so a weaker lineup. He claimed they didn't tell anyone in Saudi Arabia about one fight. I find that hard to believe. Again, I don't believe what Dana White says unless it's verified by other trusted sources. So instead, we're in the we're in the apex, and there's no, for the record, if this was the fight card that they could put together, there's no way they would have taken this to Saudi Arabia. None. This is so forgettable. I'll be covering it, so what does that say about me? But <laughs> it's such a nothing card. Oh, my gosh. Apart from like, Umar Nurmagomedov and maybe Alex Perez and Mohamed Makayev. That's it. Check Perez real fast. Is the guy fought for the belt? Yeah, tough. He's on a two-fight losing streak. I mean, Davis and Figueredo and Alexandre Pantoja. 
but he was supposed to fight Manel Cop, but then oh yeah, he was one of those other guys who pulled out of that fight. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a nothing card. Yeah, I I can't say it any other way than that. Full preview next week. So tune in for that. <laughs> oh, what am I doing with my life? Sorry, that's a whole other conversation. All right, that's everything I've got for me this week. Thank you all very, very much. I appreciate the heck out of you. Thank you as always. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.